I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, more, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. I'm Matt Bernico, and I'm a podcast producer extraordinaire, ghost hunting expert, <laughs> and the host of this podcast. I want to wow, try some new things. I don't want to just up, be yeah. the I don't want to just be the media studies professor. I want to <laughs> I want to get I want to let everyone know what I'm really all about. So um, <laughs> just kind of branching out my brand. It's good. It's good. Just throw some things at the wall and see what sticks. Um, yeah, I think I'm I'm pretty well captured already. So in all my my boring <laughs> glory. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, um, you got to just reinvent yourself every few months. That's true. That's true. <laughs> That's how you uh, you climb up the ranks of this algorithm society. That's how you do it. <laughs> this week we are closing off this labor theme that we announced we were doing several weeks ago now. Uh, and we've got some pretty interesting ways of doing it, I think, where, where it's just going to be the two of us, just Matt and I, classic, Magnificast style, doing some roundup thoughts, I guess. Uh, we'll get to those in a second, but before we do, uh, Matt, what's the big news uh, according to Patreon, iTunes, etc.? Yeah, um, okay, so we've kind of reformatted the show just a little bit, um, not hugely different. But uh, we've been able to spend a little bit more time thinking through the podcast because you guys give us a little bit of money to do so. I mean, if you give us some money, it makes us feel kind of like we are justified in taking time to really consider what we're doing here. So if uh, so, so first of all, like, thanks to everyone who supports us on Patreon. Um, and if you would like to be one of those people, you can do that. Uh, you can do that, too. You can be a supporter of this fine this fine podcast at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Uh, if you don't want to support us financially or you can't, that's fine too. We get it. Uh, capitalism is bad and it's hard and it sucks. But uh, what you can do is support us on iTunes. If you go to iTunes and you find the Magnificast, give us a, a five-star review. Give us a nice little message in there that's positive and uplifting please stop calling us tankies that is so upsetting <laughs> um <laughs> but those are the two ways you can support us yeah pl please do those things that would be great uh another housekeeping note uh this will probably be maybe the last time maybe i'll do it next week too uh that i say this but i'm teaching a class this fall on marxism and christianity and if you listen to this podcast who knows maybe those are two words that you like 
Uh, I hope so. Otherwise, you're in the wrong place for the next hour. <laughs> but the class is a bunch of Marxists talking about Christianity and a bunch of Christians talking about Marxism. And it's all online. And you can take it, uh, whether you're like a, a student or not a student or whatever, through the Institute for Christian Studies. Uh, basically, the format is it's a 13-week class. There's a break at one point. Um, but it's like any other class. We do some reading and we chat and hang out and, and talk uh, online about all those things. It costs $130 USD, which is basically like $10 a class if you think about it. So it's kind of a big chunk of money. At least it would be for me. Um, but it works out to being a cheap thing, uh, a very small chunk of money per class. So if you're interested in doing that at all, you can go to ICS canada.edu and you can find the course description and the syllabus check that out and also figure out how to register that way as well cool so we're going to get into um you know our final our final thoughts on unions and labor here but in just a minute but before we do dean i got a big question to ask you okay i'm ready <laughs> okay so um this is we're kind of revisiting this whole uh this whole bit um, I've got a good question that someone's asked on reddit.com slash r slash Christianity. And Dean, in all of his um, big, big wisdom, big Christ energy, is kind of answer it for us. Um, <laughs> big Christ energy okay. is quite quite a phrase you just coined off the top of your head just now. Yeah. I want to just gloss sorry, over that. Uh, I'm, an, I'm an influencer now. I'm an influencer, <laughs> and this is what I do. Big Christ energy is the new one. That's for 2019. That's what we're all doing this year. Yeah, yeah. Um, hashtag Christ energy. So, Dean, this one is specifically for you because it is a Catholic-specific question. Okay. So, so get ready for it. All right. Any tips to make a mass for teens? <laughs> We have an evening once a week for teenagers where they can meet each other, read the Bible, and pray, but they never come to Mass. We thought of making a new Mass maybe once a month, which would be aimed for teens and young adults. Do you have any advice how to make the Mass more appealing to teens and young adults? <laughs> so, Dean, how help these Catholic peoples out there with your, with your big Christ energy. How are you going to get these teens to Mass on Sunday? Wow, what a wild thing. Uh, it's been a long time since I was a teenager now, myself, um, mm -hmm. about 10 years or so. So I don't know what the teens are into these days, but if I had been a teen and people were trying to get me to come to Mass, you could definitely get me there if you promised pizza afterwards, if you promised uh, some pretty neat skateboard tricks, maybe during the homily. Uh, perhaps you could, uh, I don't know what's what's big this, these days, Fortnite? Is that still a thing? Maybe there could be some loot yeah. boxes. Uh, the teens do love loot boxes. They mm -hmm. love them. Uh, maybe one at like every station of the cross is another loot box. That would be great. Is the is the Eucharist in a box? Does it come in a loot box itself? I don't know. <laughs> the Eucharist is is yes, the the true loot that comes out of the tabernacle, the ultimate loot box. <laughs> you all have all heard about loot boxes, but let me tell you about this loot box of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that would be good. Uh, mass for teens. I mean, uh, you might also go out of your way to hire some some guest speakers. I mean, it might be a little complicated trying to keep the liturgy all all uh, you know good and on the books. But uh, if like Tony Hawk could just kind of come come by, even if if you had a rumor that he might show up at mass, that would get some teens there. Okay, let's. Let's talk about that for a second. So you're you get the teens to mass. You, you tell them there's going to be a special guest. It seems like it's just going, you know, it's a regular mass. You're saying all of the words. You're standing up. You're sitting down. And then out of nowhere, Tony Hawk does a big 900 over the, mm -hmm. the sepulcher of the church. 
and just lands it. And then you're there losing your mind. Oh, my gosh. The teens would love it. Yeah, I think if you could get that, if you could get that to happen one time, that would be enough because people would be like, what's going to happen this week? And you could just keep saying, you know what? You're just going to have to keep coming back. You'll and then it's out. like it's a normal one after that after, yeah, because yeah. they blew the teen budget on Tony Hawk. Yeah, exactly. But you could be like, you know, any day now, any mass now, he might be back. Yeah. Um. So I think all of the ideas we've just came Anthony, up with are St. Anthony Hawk. St. Anthony Hawk. St. Robert Burnquest. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're all Catholic. Um, what's really upsetting <laughs> is the real answers to this question. Um. Dean, do you want to do you want to wager a guess to what people have said to this on on oh, Reddit.com? Wow. It's so hard because anytime I would wager a guess, it's always going to be worse than I think. <laughs> this one's probably isn't. All right, uh, I want to say, let's see, what would a normal person suggest to get some? No, nope, you're already on the wrong track. Yeah, what would yeah, a, what so. would a person on Reddit.com think? Mm, gosh, it's so tough. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> No, you're just going to have to hit it with me. I'm dry. I can't figure it out. Yeah. Okay. Here's here's what they think. Here's what the teens want. Tradition. Tradition oh, and liturgy. No. That's what the teens want. <sighs> you know, I think that they're wrong on this one. I don't think that's exactly one of the things teens do love. No, hmm. I did not when I was a teen. One time when I was a kid, right before I was a teen, a preteen, if you will, uh, and I went to Catholic school... Um, I got in trouble because I was taking off the gum at the bottom of the pews with a number of other friends, not just me. Very important. <laughs> and uh, so it wasn't weird is what I'm trying to say. And uh, mm-hmm. we'd, we would throw the gum uh, at each other during mass, which is pretty gross, but it's mass. So you can't just mm-hmm. like get up. Right. So it's a really good gotcha. Uh, and the, uh, our teacher wasn't pretty uh, pleased about that a few a few Wednesday masses in, and so she made us clean up all the gum on the bottom of the pews. And let me tell you, that part sucked, but the gum throwing was pretty good. I did look forward to mass for that. Yeah, that makes sense. So what you're saying is that if there was more gum throwing in church, it might not be so bad for th- for the teens. Yeah, I just think there needs to be like a designated antics period. Or just kind mm-hmm. of like a like a total amnesty for about ten to fifteen minutes, kind of like during the passing of the peace, maybe, where you can just pull some pranks and then get back to the tradition. I like that. Okay, what if there's like Sunday mass and it's regular, but then you have other math mass during the week and it's like this is the goth mass, this is uh, the yeah. jock mass. I mean, I think mm-hmm. kids might like that. Yeah, that might be right. Well, the goths and the jocks would. There's a pretty specific subculture. The rest of them might not resonate. There's the there's the emo mass. There's um, the punk mass. You know, all of them are in there. You just gotta <laughs> I, get. <laughs> I feel like this is really attesting to your own adolescence that there's the jock mass, <laughs> and then there's goth, emo, and punk mass. Three yeah, <laughs> three extremely adjacent subcultures. They're all there with equal representation. I think is what is important to me. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> all right we've solved it so uh catholic church give us a call uh if you want us to be sort of mass consultants for teens and uh we'll help you out yeah please catholic church give us a call just ring us on up thanks all right so let's get down to business here <laughs> the real business <laughs> the business of business <laughs> that's right so over the last few weeks, the Magnificast has been doing uh, just a real deep dive into some contemporary topics surrounding unions, labor, and Christianity, which is different because usually we talk about history, but we've talked to people who are doing things now. Pretty wild. <laughs> I like that you say um, a deep dive because that's what like uh, that's what like real journalists say on the internet. Ooh, that's me being a real journalist. I mean, we <laughs> we did it. Think about all the people we've interviewed. That's yeah. journalist. That's journalistic street cred right there. We dove deep. Well, 
Yeah, for sure. Well, we've covered a lot of ground um, in doing so. We've learned about all types of unions and organizing and lots of like sort of niche topics. Some of the feedback on Twitter has pointed out even more cool stuff going on in unions. And um, it's like such a bummer that we can't kind of get into them all. Um, some people have messaged us about tenant unions and rider unions with it when it comes to like public transit. Um, someone even uh, tweeted us some stuff about a homeless union the other day. And that is so fan like fascinating to me. Unions and like labor and organizing are my new favorite things that I want to know all about all the time. Love it. Um, we're like totally interested and excited about all of these topics, but you know, we just can't do them all. It's impossible or else this would just be, a labor podcast. And I guess that would be cool, but um, maybe not exactly our intent. Uh, if you are, however, looking for a good labor po podcast, um, you should check out uh, Belabored with Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. It's a podcast that's associated with Descent Magazine, and it's pretty neat. I like it a lot. Um, there's a ton of other labor podcasts out there, so we'll just leave it to the professionals and get on to our sort of Marxist Christian thing. So with all that being said, we're going to like wrap up our labor arc in this episode uh, with a big roundup of some of the ideas both Christians and Marxists have had about unions and labor organizing in general. It's cool that we've heard from all these people doing actual organizing work, but now we're going to take a step back and see, you know, like what our what our big faves uh, have said about unions and labor throughout uh, throughout time and maybe like what the big Christian point of all of this might be. So the point here is to draw together the threads from past weeks into one big VeggieTales, what did we learn moment. Um, and to do that, we're going to hit up some historical stuff, some theory that drives the big ideas behind uh, Marxism and its connection to Christianity and labor unions. Um, so we're going to get into all of that here in just a minute. Um, Dean, do you want to just like, do you want to just dump it, jump in? Oh my God. Do you want to just <laughs> jump into some of these, uh, some of these big quotes? Yeah, I'm going to jump in. I'm going to dump in. I'm going to do it all. Uh, first things first to sort of set it up. Uh, we're going to get to the Marxist side of things to figure out, I guess, why it's important for Marxists to engage labor the way that they do. Um, so we've done all these episodes on labor and labor organizing and unions and all that. Uh, but hey, Marxists have a specific way of thinking about this stuff. So we're going to try to, I guess, make kind of an intervention into the, the stuff that we've done the last few weeks. Um, and then after that, we'll bring in the Christian stuff and try to put these things together. So first, from... Friedrich Engels, uh, the one, the only. Uh, Everyone's the... favorite Friedrich. <laughs> Everyone's favorite Friedrich. Uh, he says this in The Conditions of the Working Class in England, uh, <laughs> a pretty straightforward title. He says, The history of these unions is a long series of defeats of the workingmen, interrupted by a few isolated victories. What a bummer. All these efforts naturally cannot alter the economic law according to which wages are determined by the relation between supply and demand in the labor market. Hence, the unions remain powerless against all great forces which influence this relation. In a commercial crisis, the union itself must reduce wages or dissolve wholly, and at a time of considerable increase in the demand for labor, it cannot fix the rate of wages higher than would be reached spontaneously by the competition of the capitalists among themselves. But in dealing with minor, single influences, they're powerful. If the employer had no concentrated collective opposition to expect, he would in his own interest gradually reduce wages to a lower and lower point. Indeed, the battle of competition which he has to wage against his fellow manufacturers would force him to do so, and wages would soon reach the minimum. But this competition of the manufacturers among themselves is, under average conditions, somewhat restricted by the opposition of the working men. 
So, there's kind of a lot going on here. I know it's like a big chunk of text with lots of uh, Marxy words and, and things like that. But the Marxy words are important, or in this case, the Engelsy words, <laughs> the Engelsian words. You're right. There are lots of Marxy and Engelsian words going on here. Uh, what's interesting, I mean, this is just from a stupid academic standpoint, but a lot of the language that shows up in um, in Engels' Conditions of the Working Class ends up showing up in uh, the Manifesto and in the German ideology as well. Um uh, it, it is it's like interesting just kind of uh, from the historical perspective, I suppose, that Engels wrote this before he meets Marx. Marx and Engels meet and Marx is like really impressed with this piece of writing. Um, but it, it's clear that it did influence Marx in some really significant ways because you see a lot of these lines and a lot of these kind of ideas pop up in Marx again and again. Um, so we'll we'll even see how that's the case in the next thing we read. But uh, just a, a nice um, I mean, look, you're, you're not you're not here just for all of our good jokes. We're also smart people. And that's like the academic <laughs> academic uh, viewpoint that you're getting right there. <laughs> um, but like as a as an idea about uh, unions as a sort of like a take on unions and like their role within the fight against capitalism, you can kind of see what Engels is saying, right? That the the history of unions is a long series of defeats interrupted by some, you know, isolated victories. And I think that makes sense. Um, it's best when unions win, but it's naive to think that they only win, right? I mean, unions have a long history of struggling, even like contemporaneously in the United States, have a long history of struggling and losing or struggling and, you know, getting minor victories. And I don't think that's like wrong or mean to kind of pull out just, just the truth. I mean, capitalism is a really strong and powerful force and, uh, you can't just, you can't just beat it with labor unions. And that's kind of what Engels point is here that unions are good. They like do something really important. Um, they oppose, they, and they, they impose the, uh, I'm sorry, they oppose the bosses when like, you know, no one ever would otherwise. So they, they do serve that, um, sort of role. And I think that's something that uh, is good to point out. But also Engels sees that there's something more that you need here. You can't just like unions aren't going to save all of us or solve all of our problems. So, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Dean, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that's what's especially useful about Marx and Engels and the Marxist tradition in general is that it gives you a way of understanding your surroundings and also contextualizing it in a much bigger um, kind of systematic uh, perspective on everything that's happening on the ground. So, for instance, one thing that's so useful here is, like you were just saying, Matt, unions can't by themselves up upturn capitalism, right? Uh, and Engels tries to explain why that is. It's not just because he's pessimistic, for example, or because he wants to be a, a crabby old guy or whatever. It's because there are real systemic kind of relationships within capitalism that make unions effective up to a certain point and not any further than that. Uh, but what's really great about that perspective is it doesn't lead you to disparage unions and say, oh, well, union organizing must therefore be, you know, just kind of useless or or uh it it never has these big big defeats so it must not be worth investing your energy there uh on the contrary what Engels says is it's precisely because they fill the role that they do that they're really important to uh invest in right now right as a stopgap measure for at least getting as much as you can under these conditions so while marxism and uh Engels himself also want something much more than this right they want a, a unified working class that goes beyond just like a union in a workplace or, or even a, a few unions uh, linked together, 
Um, nevertheless, it's important to be able to step back and, especially in light of what we've been talking about the last few weeks, think about why unions are really, really good for us, uh, even if they're not ushering in socialism, you know, tomorrow. Yeah, for sure. I, I think, um, well, I mean, I don't know. I, and I think I agree with Engels in a lot of ways. I mean, that's because I guess, uh, you know, I'm a Marxist, <laughs> but, uh, also I think, um, given what I've seen when we've been talking to some of these folks too, that I think that um, there is a way that this kind of does sell unions short, right? Like some few isolated victories for sure. But at this point in our time, I think we've seen a lot of really important victories and how they become less and less isolated, the more interconnected unions get too, right? There's a sense in which uh, Angles here is, you know, talking about a very specific time period and we have to recognize that, but we can see kind of like um, a historical arc from, you know, how, or, or a historical arc about, you know, what happens when unions um, work together and become more interconnected and become more international. So um, I don't want to, I don't want to sell unions short in any way uh, with this, with this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And it's worth mentioning there too, right, that what Engels is talking about is how, how unions sort of relate to an overall vision of socialism. And in that sense, the, the victory defeat kind of calculus that he makes here um, is fair. But in a, in a different kind of sense, right, uh, when you think about what unions do for the day-to-day -day lives of working people, uh, there's actually a lot of victories that happen kind of all the time. Uh, you know, that's something that we were really impressed by when we talked to Dree, for example, that not only are your wages getting sorted out, but people are lobbying for you and doing real kind of cultural and political work on your behalf as well, right? Um, so unions are kind of involved in the long game, uh, not just sort of, um, you know, on the sidelines until the socialists come along and like put everybody together or something. Yeah, yeah. I think thinking of unions as a long game is maybe a, a, maybe the best way to do it, right? Because we're in, you know, in 2019, there have been so many union victories up until now that have gotten us, you know, closer and closer to, I mean, not necessarily socialism, but more and more livable conditions or, you know, um, more workers power than there's been in the past. Um, well, I mean, even though unions trend downwards in the United States, um, but it's still, still the case, right? There have been historic victories that have um, inched workers closer to um, more dignified lives. And I think that's good. And, and you know, it's, it's great to recognize that. Yeah, it's cool. Um, <laughs> it is cool. Well, I'm just, maybe I'm just excited about unions. You can't, <laughs> you can't get me off this. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Uh, I'm not going to try. Um, let's think though a little bit more about how unions do relate to that bigger kind of vision of socialism because Marx and Engels, when they did finally become the, the duo that everybody knows and loves and wrote the communist manifesto in particular, uh, they continued to think about this and put these things in a, a broader horizon. So let me read something from there and then I'll, uh, I'll ask you what you think in light of all that. Um, yeah. So in the manifesto, there's a lot going on, right? They do a whole uh, sort of historical materialist explanation of the transformation of labor by industrial capitalism, right? They tell a story of how labor becomes the way that it is today, which is different than it would have been under feudalism or, or something like that. Uh, and in light of all that, they say this. The increasing improvement of machinery, ever more rapidly developing, makes their livelihood more and more precarious, the workers, that is the proletariat. The collisions between individual workmen and individual bourgeois take more and more the character of collisions between two classes. Thereupon, the workers begin to form combinations, trades unions, against the bourgeois. They club together in order to keep up the rate of wages. 
they found permanent associations in order to make provision beforehand for these occasional revolts. Here and there, the contest breaks out into riots. Now and then, the workers are victorious, but only for a time. The real fruit of their battle lies not in the immediate result, but in the ever-expanding union of the workers. I guess that's kind of the long game. This union is helped on by the improved means of communication that are created by modern industry, and that place the workers of different localities in contact with one another. It was just this contact that was needed to centralize the numerous local struggles, all of the same character, into one national struggle between classes. But every class struggle is a political struggle, and that union, to attain which the burghers of the Middle Ages, with their miserable highways, required centuries, the modern proletarian, thanks to railways, achieve in a few years. Yeah, I actually really love this. I mean, for a lot of reasons, right? It does kind of describe that union is a long game. Um, I still think it does sell short. I mean, like for, for us, it might sell short the actual like material gains of unions. But um, I think Marx is right, too, when he says that the real fruit of the battle lies not in the immediate results, but the ever-expanding union of workers, right? That there's a sense of like uh, long-reaching solidarity and connection. And I think those things are really important. I just don't want to like <laughs> erase the actual... Uh, like. All I'm trying to say is I like, I like weekends, and I think it's great, and I'm glad that union <laughs> workers uh, and people, you know, organized for that kind of thing. But I guess what I find really interesting in the manifesto here is that the the way that um, Marx and Engels relate um, the like the sort of changing uh, the, the the change that industrial capitalism brings to life uh, via the revolutionary machinery uh, or the revolutionary material of machinery, right? Um, the, the very first sentence that you read is, you know, the increasing improvement of uh, machinery ever more rapidly developing makes their livelihood more and more precarious. Um, that is, you know, the workers livelihood more and more precarious. Um, so, you know, switching from a or, you know, tr transforming labor from a, a feudal sort of system to uh, more and more of an industrial situation makes um, makes a worker's life different. They can do more work faster. Or, um, you know, you don't have to be a craftsman to to do some of this labor. You know, the machine does it for you. And if you aren't willing to do it for this amount of money, they'll hire someone out under you and like that kind of thing. Right. And I guess what I find really interesting about that is that it's exactly the same case today that um, changing machinery um, revolutionized the way labor is done and it makes work way more precarious. Right. This is exactly the whole point of um the the last bit of the conversation we have with Tanara about the uh, the food couriers that you know it's um, technology changes and it makes their job more disparate disconnected um, and harder to you know uni unify under a union um, and that's why unions are all that much more important uh, it's it's an interesting thing to really think about the role technology has in the the shifting terrain of labor and how you know what Marx says then rings true now. Um, there's a part later on in the manifesto where I think it's in the manifesto at least, or maybe it's in the German ideology. I can't remember at this point, but Marx explains, you know, that, um, you know, the proletariat um, are always considered the revolutionary class and that's true, but um, the bourgeoisie are always the, always, you know, even more revolutionary in the sense that they're always changing the way that labor relates to workers through um, the implementation of new machinery and new sort of regimes of time that those machinery follow and uh, I think that, you know, um, is still true. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Um, and I think you're right that it's important to, like, contextualize this, I guess, uh, to say what Marx and Engels are doing here is trying to draw unions into a, a much bigger story um, about the, the road to communism. Um, but 
we shouldn't necessarily use that as a way of uh, disparaging unions or underselling them or not appreciating what they do in in the day to day, right? In the in the short term, uh, or in their kind of little pieces of that long game that are actually very very big pieces in people's lives. Uh, but I think it's also the case that like any good self respecting uh, Marxist is certainly aware of that, right? Like they. Um, they the reason that marxists care about unions is in part because they they think that unions are a important vehicle on the road to socialism uh but also because they recognize that people just need that right they need these kinds of institutions just to uh keep their their livelihood basically right to to give them wages and um give them things like weekends and advocate uh because if the unions don't then who's going to certainly not the ruling class right um, so yeah, I guess all that to say, uh, I think that one thing that Marxism tries to do is say like, Hey, all these good things about unions that you rightly think are good. Um, what if that was expanded in a, a you know, a social wide scale, a political scale, um, such that you wouldn't actually have to use unions just as kind of a, um, a defensive thing, right? That's something that, uh, Dree was talking about that she always feels like she's kind of on defense, um, in her job as a lobbyist. Um, but in fact, it would be the the building blocks or the basis of how to to rebuild a society differently, um, and that means thinking a little bit like bigger, I guess. Yeah, it makes me think of this comment someone made. Man, I can't remember who it was. I think it was on Twitter or something. Man, if anyone remembers it and knows who I'm referencing here, let me know. I guess. But uh, someone mentioned that um, you know, like unions uh, in the United States, at least, spend a lot of their time um, negotiating, like benefits when it comes to health and insurance, like insurance is like, um, you know, how it's going to get worked out for a job is like a huge deal because, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but it's expensive and a pain in the <laughs> butt, right? <laughs> but like, uh, someone said though, that, you know, um, if there was something like, uh, universal healthcare or whatever, right. Think about all the, like what that would free up unions to do right. otherwise. And I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about these, like, um, I mean, I don't want to sell them short by saying they're reformist, but they are reformist. Um, but it, it's a good way to think about these reformist measures, right? That when we win something small, even if it's something like a weekend or better health care or universal health care or universal college or whatever, it always takes like a little bit more off the plate of things that need to be won and makes more room for doing even more things, right? And um, it might sound like I'm making an argument for reformism <laughs> instead of revolution, but I think that those two things are actually pretty interconnected, Um and, uh, you know, uh, we, we shouldn't sell either of them short, I suppose. Yeah, well, that's the classic Rosa Luxemburg thing, right? Um, she yeah. has this famous reply to, uh, uh, to Bernstein in the Social Democratic Party in Germany, where she says, um, you know, she's fighting a reformist um, impulse within the party. And what she says is, well, okay, we shouldn't be reformists. We should be revolutionaries. But does that mean that we don't care about reforms at all? And she says, no. In fact, what it means is uh, a good revolutionary should absolutely support reforms insofar as they make working people's lives better, right? And they do. Uh, but the key is to not be satisfied with them or not see them as the the ultimate goal, but rather to see them kind of in this way that Marx and Engels talk about with unions, right? As one more step in a very long way. Um, and I think that's also like a good revolutionary principle, right? To uh, to recognize like what are real, actual, tangible and meaningful gains in people's lives and not to write those off, but rather to try to um, put them in context and be like, yeah, what about this? And also some other things. So a yes and rather than like a yes, but.
Yeah, it actually reminds me, this is kind of a weird poll, but it, it does remind me of some of like the situationist graffiti in 68. Um, there's a lot of it, right? That's very famously taken from Guy Debord's book, Society Spectacle. But uh, there's this like one particular phrase that always sticks in my head, and it is, be reasonable, demand everything. <laughs> right. Um, right? And it's like uh, reformism, yeah, for sure, but also revolution. It's like uh, it's saying yes to everything. That The only reasonable position is to uh, want it all. And I think that's right. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. Hey, you know who should we you know who we should talk about right now is Lennon. Let's talk about <laughs> Lennon. <laughs> All right. Yes. Back to the old Magnificast branded transition. <laughs> that that transition was uh it was a good one. Getting back to the, our roots. What must be transitioned. <laughs> that's right. Okay, so um listen, we got angles. We got marks and angles, but now let's get the let's get that next our next bro, our uh our our next communist bro, Lennon in the mix here. <laughs> Um, so this is from, uh, a, a little, a little pamphlet called should revolutionaries work in reactionary trade unions. And it's a pretty interesting thing, actually. Um, I was reading it all kind of before we started talking. And if you are interested in that, um, sort of revolution or, uh, reform kind of co- question and conversation, this is a good thing to read. Uh, if you find Luxembourg, um, compelling, you got to read Lenin next. Um, so Lenin says this. We can and must begin to build socialism, not with abstract human material or with human material specially prepared by us, but with the human material bequeathed to us by capitalism. True, it's no easy matter, but no other approach to this task is serious enough to warrant discussion. The trade unions were a tremendous step forward for the working class in the early days of capitalist development, inasmuch as they marked a transition from the workers' disunity and helplessness to the rudiments of class organization. When the revolutionary party of the proletariat, the highest form of proletarian class organization, began to take shape, the trade unions inevitably begin to reveal certain reactionary features, a certain craft narrow-mindedness, a certain tendency to be non-political, a certain inertness, etc. However, the development of the proletariat did not and could not proceed anywhere in the world otherwise than through the trade unions, through reciprocal action between them and the party of the working class. All right, that's our guy Lenin. Dean, what what do we say about that? <laughs> yeah, lots to be said about that. Well, this kind of brings, I think, some of the threads we were just talking about uh, together, not just the reformism and revolutionary bit, but also the how do you really think about unifying these things. Um, I think that one thing that uh, I think it's Jody Dean explains this somewhere or anyway, she's the name I associate with this principle, maybe fairly, maybe unfairly, (laughs) but uh, somebody describes uh, Leninism as kind of an attempt to solve the problem of like, what do you do when every once in a while there's kind of an eruption of activity, but then it kind of simmers back down. Uh, And the Leninist solution is to say, well, you have to build an institution that's capable of drawing a line between all these things, you know, connecting the dots when things aren't exciting. Uh, That's kind of the most important bit. Like everybody can get excited when everyone's excited. But can you find a way to actually like funnel or channel that excitement into a sustained uh, project? And I think that Lenin is is kind of exhibiting that principle here by talking about unions, right? So uh, unions are recognized as this uh, really momentous eruption of uh, of unity in the working class, right? Um, but that eruption fizzles out or uh, you know cools off or something like that. And Lenin is saying that shouldn't actually make you 
kind of be like, well, then that's all they are, right? That uh, even reactionary unions are just kind of like useless or, or inert or, or pointless. But on the contrary, you have to find a way to affirm them insofar as there's this relationship that needs to be built between those inert unions and exciting unions and all that kind of thing and people who are thinking with this long-term goal of of social transformation, right? Not just the transformation of one workplace or another, but the transformation of society such that workplaces as a thing uh, don't have to be exploitative. And I think that's like a really huge paradigm shift that I think a lot of people fail to make because communism is a a dirty word or Leninism is a kind of dirty tradition. Um, But it's a really useful like analytical tool to be able to think through problems like the frustrations people might have with uh, the inertness of people around them or institutions around them and uh, instead engage those things critically and even passionately. Yeah, I think so too. Well, I mean, the, yeah, it is funny that Leninism or communism, I mean, well, communism is always scary because it's scary to, you know, the bourgeoisie, but that Leninism is always as scary as it is because like, it's kind of just a, to me, it's like an organizational principle more than anything terrifying but like um as an organizational principle the bolsheviks did a really good job of connecting their party with the union um further like earlier in that essay uh from lenin he's talking about the ways that the communist party uh, you know of the the, the bolsheviks in uh, in russia are like directly connected with the like six hundred thousand um uh, union members and that they're like, you know, they, they kind of like, uh, are reciprocal, uh, organs within, uh, the Soviet union. It's just like kind of really interesting connection that they work out. Um, and I think that's a pretty interesting thing to do. I like it. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, this is a, a great principle to sort of talk about the, the importance of labor unions specifically, right? Because, I think you can you can expand this to talk about a lot of other things, right? Like uh, Paulo Ferreira does this in Pedagogy of the Oppressed. He tries to mm. really make a compelling argument for how um, the party uh, and you know the revolutionaries always are successful insofar as they can be in dialogue with the masses, uh, whether that's unions or civil society organizations or social movements or even the church. But I think that talking about labor specifically, as we've been, is really important too because labor is not just sort of one group among many other groups. It's a relationship of production in society. And to transform the means of production, that means you have to get in touch with the people who are actually part of it, right? Um, And Lenin and Leninism, I think, builds on Marxism by trying to say, all right, we've understood how all these things go together, how the pieces of, you know, wages and bosses and workers kind of fit uh, based on that analytical framework. Now, what do we do? And Lenin is like, you just like get in there, (laughs) even when uh, (laughs) even when it's not exciting. That's what you do. And in fact, that's probably the most important piece. Yeah, that sounds right. I mean, I guess that's why I think it sounds like an organizational principle, right? Is that you yeah. have to try to it's a it's a way that you're trying to connect the circuit and keep it moving even though it's not like a, a hot moment or whatever. Yeah. Um all right. Well, maybe we should start talking a little bit about Christianity because uh we got so excited about Marxism. Uh maybe we can also get excited about this other thing. <laughs> we'll see. Maybe maybe we can. <laughs> maybe. So Marxists have like a vested interest in thinking hard about labor for all these and other reasons and that's kind of easy to see. But what about Christians? I think that's kind of a harder question to answer in a weird way. So over the last couple of weeks, we talked about how even though there's kind of like a we've been talking about a Christianity for the bosses, there's also a Christianity for the workers. Or maybe you could put it like Christianity is also cut up by the class struggle like everything else in society. It doesn't escape that that antagonism. 
And I think there's clearly a biblical case that you could make for getting involved in labor struggles, right? Lenin is making a strategic case, but you could make a kind of biblical case. Um, And it's also not that hard to draw a link between Christian tradition, like caring for the marginalized uh, and getting involved in in solving the social conditions that marginalize people in the first place, right? You, You could think about that as a Christian person. But even if Christians agree that labor unions are important, they don't always think about how to respond to that importance in the same way, and they definitely don't always think about it in a Marxist way. Um, So I want to talk a little bit for a minute about how Christians have, I guess, done and not done that, and then we can uh, get back to trying to put these two together. So maybe we could start out talking about Catholic social teaching. So right in the beginning, for example, in Rerum Novarum, which is a really important papal encyclical, uh, the Catholic tradition recognizes the right to form labor associations and the need to intervene in these unequal situations. Uh, and that document and a lot of other ones, though, are not just Marxist, but even anti-socialist, despite talking about labor a lot. So historically, that leads not just to a difference of opinion, but to a lot of Catholics creating unions that compete with socialists to organize the working class, often in a way that kind of tones down like the radical parts of unionized labor. And at the same time, though, like to kind of complicate the story, a lot of histories of Catholic unions also end up telling the story of people who get radicalized more and more just by being involved in the struggle, the labor struggle. And then they end up kind of pushing toward a socialist transformation of their unions or their lives. So I guess all that is to say that there's a way of thinking about these things that sees Christians have these different motivations for caring about labor. And sometimes those motivations actually serve to set up the working class uh, in a way that doesn't move toward the horizon of, of socialism or something, but actually preserves capitalism in a really weird, complicated way. Yeah, well, the the tradition has developed a bit since then, <laughs> since Ram Navarum. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, man. Yeah, I mean, papal teachings on unions have become, I think, uh, more and more radical, despite um, you know, much to the chagrin of the trads. Um, <laughs> yeah. Pope, Pope Benedict, uh, for example, sometimes highlighted the need for international solidarity among unions, which is one of the things that politicizes the working class for sure. And like, like we said back in the first episode, uh, on this theme, Pope Francis has been getting pretty wild about unions too. Um, it, it, you go back to listen to that, that episode, you can hear Dean read them quite skillfully, but uh, I'll repeat it here. <laughs> Pope Francis said, the union is an expression of the prophetic profile of society. Um, he goes on to say, too, that like you need a union for the, the common good, right? That big, good goal of Catholic social teaching. So Pope Francis... A, a little more, a little more rad than the trads. <laughs> that's right. Ooh. Well, so far that's kind of all Catholic stuff, but you could do a similar thing for Protestants. Um, there have been Protestant labor unions that were anti-socialist too, for example. Um, but in both of these cases, there have been you know plenty of Christians who didn't feel the need to make uh, you know what they were doing uh, specifically Christian. You know, their unions didn't have to be like branded as a a Christian union. They simply just organized working people because they thought that's what Christians should do. So over the course of the Magnificast, a lot of people and movements we've looked at have been motivated by their relationship to class struggle and the labor movement, uh, to get deeper into their faith and deeper into socialism alike. So, um, I don't know, a few, a few examples, uh, of episodes come to mind, go back and listen to our episodes on Heath Carter, uh, or A.E. Smith or Grace Hutchins, lots of people who are Christians that just decided that like Christianity is fine and great, but um, that they belong in the class struggle. And I think that's um, always been really inspiring and interesting to both Dean and I. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, all that being the case, though, uh, I think it's important, too, to think about how Christians need to be probably a little bit Marxist, uh, hopefully a lot of it, <laughs> but <laughs> at least a little bit, uh, not just because it's like an ideology that we obviously prefer on this podcast, uh, but because it's it's kind of the only analytical tool, or at least a very, very important one, that will get Christians what they're after, which is a, a material living out of what the Gospels call us to do. So one of the Bible themes, for example, is caring for the poor, right? Uh, the prophets and Jesus and Paul and other people in the Bible, the early church and Acts and so on. They give all of these... them, the whole gang. Yeah, they're all there right. about this. All your faves. Uh, they give all these like <laughs> commandments or specific explanations of why Christians should work for the dignity and care of people. And maybe even like why you should denounce the rich or something. But these biblical sources don't really do a great job of giving Christians the analytical tools to figure out exactly how to do that, right? That's the, the missing link. Um, and I think taking a page from liberation theology, Marxism might be a good fit for Christians who want to think about justice and love in these structural kinds of ways. So even if you don't want to join like a communist party or something, Marx and Marxists have tried to give us some tools that describe the situation that we're in. So Marxism could tell us things about, for example, like how wealth gets created or who gets to keep it and why, how some people get put in like dangerous life circumstances while other people get to enjoy comfort because of that. Basically, the stuff that the Bible is always judging as bad or, or calling out, but the Bible doesn't necessarily do a good job at helping us see how those bad things come about. So if you put these two things together with the Marxist analysis and praxis, Christians can do more than just talk about or preach about justice. They can actually enact it uh, and they can understand why they need to or how they need to strategically. Right. And I think that's like a really important piece because uh, a lot of Christians have the right motivations, maybe, or they have, a, you know, a, an intuitive sense that like to care about justice is also to care about labor. Right. It's Labor Sunday this Sunday, even um, a, a time where in some Christian traditions, people set aside the, the whole day to really think about labor. Um, but nevertheless, like if you don't have an idea of how capital disenfranchises labor or uses labor or exploits it, you're going to have a really hard time actually attacking the, the antagonisms that create the unjust situation in the first place. So Marxism, even if you're not like wanting to be a really hardcore Marxist or whatever, it can at least give you some perspectives on how and, and why targeting Christian praxis uh, might be more or less effective within a capitalist society or context. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, my my personal axe that I'm always grinding after church specifically is how like, man, all this stuff that my pastor is saying sounds great. It's it's so cool that we care about the poor. Um, but, you, you know, that, that that it lacks a type of analysis that tells us what we ought to do is a huge problem. I hate how vague <laughs> I hate how vague sermons are sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I just want like, OK, like, great. We should care about the poor. And now, like, let's go on strike or whatever i don't know right um well that's what yeah. uh we talked about that with um dang uh jean bertrand aristide right where oh yeah <laughs> he was like um hey uh remember this crazy thing in i think it was leviticus or whatever he was like that's kind of like a general strike and you know what we should do in haiti exactly that <laughs> <laughs> yeah that makes sense yeah so i don't know um uh uh, sub point to all of this please pastors out there just say something very specific that you want people <laughs> to do and let it be join a union <laughs> <laughs> okay just kidding well i mean i'm not kidding but um i'm not gonna tell you what, how to do your job okay <laughs> all of that being said though um christians becoming involved in like labor organizing uh, like also gets them involved in class war 
Uh, I mean, like, that's kind of like a weird way to put it, but it's true, right? I mean, um, labor organizing is about demanding power from um, from the ruling class. And that's, sorry, what class war is. <laughs> that can be kind of like a turnoff for some people. Um, being on the side of the poor, like, entails being against the rich. I mean, that's just kind of how the dialectic works. Um, and that can kind of make us uncomfortable as Christians for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, like the 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 rich, the ruling class, they might be sitting just a few pews ahead of you at church. Um, you know, they might be people in your small group or what or something. Um, it, but like Dean said earlier, right, like class uh, cuts up Christianity just as much as anything else. Uh, the, the church is not uh, exempt from uh, a raging class war. And I think that um, we should think about that and kind of sit with how uncomfortable it is. Um also, in my experience, too, like my Midwest experience, uh, Christians and churches, man, love to be passive aggressive at each other and never just like outright <laughs> aggressive. So that's that's also playing against us. Yeah, yeah. Um, just be aggressive, aggressive. Yeah, just be aggressive, aggressive. Just get that class war and stop being like mad about the color of the carpet in your sanctuary or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, our proximity to the rich, uh, nor our hatred of inter-Christian conflict should really get in way of doing the gospel, right? That's the whole reason we're Christians in the first place, to enact uh a specific type of social a, a, a specific type of social um, ethic that Jesus told us about, um, so that we can all be saved in one way or another. Um, this whole thing about class war is tough, and like you know how the how these tensions play out in a church, or how you know you'd even talk about this in a church with other people who are you know maybe on the other side of that rift than you. Maybe maybe not you know materially, but ideologically they might be on the other side of that rift than you. Um, it makes me think back to some stuff that Herbert McCabe says in his essay, Class War and Christian Love. And I think to kind of close out this conversation, I'm just going to read a bit of that, uh, the conclusion to his essay, because I think it kind of gets at some of this tension that we might find in the church when it comes to um, organizing material struggles and uh, getting at some of these things the gospel tells us to do structurally. So Herbert McCabe says this, through grace, through the life of Christ in him, the Christian is able in an odd way to adopt the perspective of God, who loves both the just and unjust. This does not make the unjust any less unjust. This does not in any way diminish the need for struggle, the need for smashing the power of the exploiter and oppressor, but it does in the end make hatred impossible. There is a paradox, but no contradiction, in being able by the grace of God to love the person you must fight. There is a paradox, but no contradiction in having an enemy who must be destroyed, and yet who is not in any ultimate sense the enemy, but the one for whom Christ also dies. There is a paradox, but no contradiction, in fact, in loving your enemies, and the paradox lies in God, who is not just the future, not just the transcendent towards which we strive, but is Emmanuel, God with us, the future which is already with us, drawing us to himself. I think this is a good note to end on because it does articulate a way to think about that rift, the way that class war cuts up even Christianity in our communities, um, while still being, I think, uniquely Christian in ways that maybe Marxists aren't um, all the time, right? We talk a lot about how good Marxism is on this podcast, and uh, I stand by it, but um, there, is <laughs> maybe, um, there is maybe an ethic of love that uh, Marxists miss, and I think it's right here, right? The sense that like the people who are on the other side of that class war than you are your enemies and you have to fight against them and you want to do that not because like you hate them or because um 
you know, you're bloodthirsty, but you're doing it because you're striving for justice and uh, you and your opponent can't live in a just world unless you, you know, figure it out, uh, unless you overcome it, unless you resolve that tension in some way. And um, uh, I guess the the big thing is that that means uh, sometimes fighting other Christians. That means like um, uh, being in conflict. And I think that sucks, but uh, that's what fighting for justice looks like. Yeah, I think that's right. And the last few episodes that we've done, I think, help us also figure that out, right? Like, um, thinking about the labor struggle, for example, is the kind of thing that you would have to do if you didn't want people working in, like, media journalism, for example, to be, you know, killing themselves over, like, deadlines and stuff for no pay. Like, that's not a, a very loving society. And if you really care about love, that means getting into that situation and figuring out why that's the case, why people are having a really hard time. And when you start asking those kinds of questions, whether you're a Marxist or not, you inevitably kind of come up against some pretty obvious problems, right? That like, well, the boss doesn't want to pay you that much because they want money too. They want more money than you have, uh, right? Um, it's the same in kind of the the organizing work and the policy work that uh, that Dree was talking about, that there are real political enemies at stake here, and it's important to fight against them, even though you might all be baptized in the same church tradition or something. Uh, that's not to say that everybody actually wants a loving society, right? Um, people don't kind of get inevitably shaped by the gospel to want the same thing, unfortunately. Uh, it would be great if that were the case, but because it isn't, Christians have to find a way to, you know, struggle against other Christians in many cases and, and non-Christians too, of course. Uh, but in the interest of of kind of trying to realize the gospel. And I think what we try to do, at least on this podcast and hopefully in this episode, is to pull Marxism and Christianity together in such a way that isn't just like a cheap fusing of these two things, but to say, hey, if you, like us, were, were raised with a kind of Christian outlook on the world and you have these these deep-seated Christian motivations that, for whatever reason, you're never going to get rid of, uh, maybe you too might find uh, Marxism a, a useful and helpful way of, like, solving these problems, right? And thinking them through and uh, actually trying to tackle them rather than just like throwing up your hands and being like, well, you know, the the poor are always going to be with you. And like, that's in the Bible. So I guess that's what it is. Yeah, totally. I think that's a good way of putting it. All right. Well, tell your pastor, tell the people <laughs> at your church. Sorry, but we got to fight each other. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to go over really well. Yeah, exactly. Totally. <laughs> uh, at the very least tell them uh, to ask hard questions about why their wages are so low or uh, why they don't want to pay their workers depending on who you're talking to yeah I think so um, man uh, I did just uh, I did just put my pastor on blast but there's been some things that he said that are really good like uh, that Christians should be able to share their salaries amongst one another in the sense of like tell everyone how they get paid how much they get paid yeah. and I think that's a I think that's some good uh, and hard advice though for a church community Um but something that uh, we should all live with. Yeah, I think just so. In the sen- just in the sense that, like, um, you know, we we want to be explicit with one another in sort of, like, um, how we're going to live together as as Christians in a place. Um, so we might as well, like, really throw in together and say, like, this is, you know, this is our this is our demographic breakup. This is our socioeconomic status. This is what's represented here. And, like, why, maybe why is, uh, is some of the good question to ask. So, cool. Get get in that class struggle with all your Christian love. There you go. Put it all into that big struggle. That big <laughs> struggle bus on the way to church. <laughs> 
Hey, well, thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard in this episode, and you know you did, you know you liked it. You um, love that big Christ energy. You you love that big Christ energy. <laughs> that BCE. Um, oh, man, we need to make a new sticker or T-shirt, though, that just says hashtag big Christ energy. Yeah, I guess um, so. That's going to have to happen. Uh, yeah, well, anyway, sorry, if you did like this, if you like that big Christ energy, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash the Magnificast. Leave us an iTunes review. That's also, uh, that's just as good as money to me right now. Um <laughs> <laughs> yeah um our intro music is by amaria armstrong and our outro music is by the illogical spoon uh so the illogical spoon take it away church in the morning church in the morning souls alive heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation never get tired never bored don't worry someday there'll be no dam between us and our lord Jackson, keep your hoods up, and keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early.